and it's it's just so fun to hear the joy of children even as we're trying to sing and they're trying to sing it's it's fun to see them among us uh, those that uh, are interested in getting baptized i mentioned it a few weeks ago we need to follow up now that have come to a place where you believe in the lord jesus christ as your lord and savior but you've not obeyed him in going through the waters of baptism maybe now is the time so after the service, I'll be standing down front. If you'd like to come and talk to me, we can talk about what baptism is and arrange a time to get together. But uh, we hope to have a baptism class here coming up soon. Over the past couple of weeks, there's been something that I've been preparing. It's been a heavy burden on my heart, and I, I presented it at the congregational meeting a few weeks ago. And I'd like to just introduce it a little more this morning. You go out the, these doors in the foyer table just about just inside the main front doors. I've put some articles out there. And it's just really been a burden on my heart for the last month or so to really start praying specifically and particularly and intentionally for the prodigals in our church. And so I've put three articles out there. One of them is entitled, Pray Them Home, Three Prayers for Prodigal Children. And another, it, it tells the story of a, of a woman who was wayward and what brought her back to faith and encouraging people to pray for the prodigals in their lives. A second one is called Five Prayers for Prodigals and how we can specifically pray for our loved ones, our sons, our daughters, our spouses, our grandchildren that are away from the Lord. Just some things to stimulate our thinking. You know, we, we're like the apostles. We need to go to the Lord and say, teach us how to pray. Help us to know what are the things we should pray for. What are some principles that we should think about? And then there's a prayer card that I've picked up from Nav Press on prayers for prodigals, and there's 21 different scriptural references that you can use to pray specifically for the prodigals in your life. And so those articles are there. Pick, feel free to pick one up. We can, of course, always produce more. But in the coming weeks, let's just pound the doors of heaven on behalf of our loved ones who maybe once were involved in church or grew up in a Christian family, but now are living in a way that is far from a Christian testimony. And let's plead with God to bring them home. And even before we get into a time in the Word this morning, then I'm going to have, a, have us have a time of prayer now. So join me as we pray for prodigals. And even as we bow our heads and pray, I know for many of us a name has already come to mind. And in the quietness of your heart, just offer that person up to the Lord and ask the Lord to do a great work in stirring his heart, stirring her heart, to be convicted of their sin. And Father in heaven, we ask that you would hear the, the cries coming from the depths of our hearts on behalf of dear ones who are away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, the burdens that we feel because of them, we, we pour at your feet now and ask you to go to work as only you can through your Holy Spirit. Would you work through circumstances? Would you work through friends and colleagues and acquaintances and random contacts where a word would be spoken that would jar them from their spiritual lethargy? And that they would find the need the desire the longing to fall on their knees before you and say oh god have mercy on me forgive me for having wandered away and maybe father for those that 
grew up in a Christian home, but never actually came to Jesus Christ. They knew the right words. They knew the right actions. But we're never born again. Father, would you do a work that only you can do? But Father, we're not going to give up on our loved ones. And we ask that you would burden us to pray regularly, often, on behalf of these dear ones. And Father, we pray that as we see you working, we'd be quick to give you thanks. And so, Father, we agree together. These names that are percolating on our hearts, that are stirring on our minds now, we present them to you. We say, oh, Spirit of the living God, go after them and bring them home that we might rejoice that a prodigal has come back. Hear our prayers, Father, in Jesus' name. Before we get into our time in the Word this morning, I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned off, turned to silent. As we're live streaming, we want to eliminate, if we can, distractions. And for those of you joining us online this morning, good morning. Thank you for being with us. As we continue in our series through the Gospel according to Matthew, we're glad you can be with us as we continue to study in Matthew 17. And we invite you then to open your copy of God's Word wherever you are as we get ready to hear from the Lord. There was a man that was on vacation, strolling along outside of his hotel in Acapulco, Mexico, enjoying the beauty of the weather. And suddenly he was startled by the screams of a woman kneeling in front of a child. And the man knew enough Spanish to determine that the child had swallowed a coin. Seizing the child by the heels, the man held him upside down, gave him a few shakes, and suddenly an American quarter dropped down onto the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, cried the woman. You seem to know just how to get it out of him. Surely you're a doctor. No, ma'am, replied the man. I'm with the United States Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> but the tax man cometh for all, and apparently none are really exempt. Now, it might seem strange to start out talking this morning about taxes. But in the passage that we're going to look at, we'll see that that was an issue even for the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And while the tax that is mentioned in this passage does not deal with the government per se, but with the running of the temple in Jerusalem, it's a reminder that Jesus, when entering into the fullness of our humanity, dealt with all the issues that we have to face as those created in the image of God. We're actually going to look at two short stories in our time this morning as we look at Matthew 17, verses 22 to 27. One of them talks about upcoming events in Jerusalem where Jesus reminds us again that he will suffer and die. And the other talks about the proper role and support of the temple. But in fact, both of these stories point to who Jesus really is and why he came to earth as the God-man, living among the people of the first century how to bring us back to God, to show us who God is and to show us what he came to do. We're getting near the end. In fact, today we'll finish the end of chapter 17 in our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to look at the themes this morning of promise, privilege, and provision. And if you are able, I invite you to stand in honor of God as we read our passage for this morning and hear what God has to say through his holy word. And the precious and true word of God says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, 
the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do, whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of God. Let's receive it for the edification purpose given through it by God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us this morning. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, what a privilege we have to sit under the authority of your word, and what a joy it is to know that Jesus Christ is a good teacher. And as you teach us this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do in the opening of eyes, unblocking of ears, softening of hearts, strengthening of wills, so that all that we do would be for your glory, for we really do desire to have a greater glimpse of who Jesus is as we study this word this morning, as we prepare to hear from you, and as we agree together now in Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to follow along in your sermon outline if you're able. If you have the church app, you're able to take notes there as well, and you can share these notes with people throughout the week. But we get to our first major point this morning, which is promise to Jerusalem we go. Promise to Jerusalem we go. And our text begins, and I'm going to break it down just into sections, as is my habit. It just starts out by saying, as they were gathering in Galilee. Now, the disciples are leaving the area of Caesarea Philippi. There is a lot that has happened over the past few chapters in the gospel according to Matthew in Caesarea Philippi. This great confession of faith in Jesus. But then, immediately, the challenge where, no, no, Jesus, you're not going to be the suffering Messiah. And so Jesus has to put Peter in his place. And then there's miracles that are performed as Jesus shows his power. And now they've turned to leave Caesarea Philippi, and they're going back through the region of Galilee, but the ultimate destination is Jerusalem. But for a short time, they've gathered in Galilee, and they're all back together. Those that were up on the mountain with Jesus, those that remain down in the valley, all of the apostles and disciples that are gathering with him are now in Galilee, and Jesus will begin to speak to them. And he speaks then of betrayal, death, and resurrection. To complete verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. This is one of several times in the gospel, according to Matthew, that Jesus promises a time of suffering. He's already mentioned it. In chapter 16, he's mentioning it here, he's going to mention it in chapter 20, he's going to mention it in several more times before we get to the end of this gospel. So whether through direct promise or through allusions or illustrations, Jesus makes clear there is a reason why he has come. We saw it all the way back in chapter 1, verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. And he will do this. He will carry it out. He will accomplish it, even though he must go through many difficult things beforehand. 
because he knows all of those things are under the control of the Father who orchestrates all things for the praise of his name. So far, so good. There's a review. These are things that we've already known. We've seen many times as we go through the gospel. But there are two things that are added here that were not in previous predictions of what will happen. The first here is that Jesus states clearly that he will be delivered into the hands of men. And the word here in the original is paradidomai. It is a word that was used when Jesus was betrayed into the hands of his, his enemies. The word paradidomai means to hand over, but often in the context of to betray. So it was the word that was used of Judas who betrayed, who handed over Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And so not only have they dealt, are they still dealing with this idea that the Messiah must suffer, that he will die, now all of a sudden a new element has been added that he'll be betrayed. And so we can see then that there's growing distress, there's growing stress that they are feeling. But once again, they're slow to recognize the most important part of the promise. He will be raised on the third day. Sorry. He will be delivered into the hands of men. Oh, yeah. So, once in a while it happens where I jump a paragraph. Let's go back up. The first one after paradidomai is the play on words that's going on in the original. You see it in the English. You have the son of man, the hands of men. There's a play on words. It's even more clear in the original that talks about the son of man. Huios tu anthropou is delivered into the heras anthropon. You can hear it echoing that the one through whom all things were created, the one who came to be the redeemer, the one who came to save, will be delivered into the very hands of the ones he had created, many of whom were the objects of his redemption. You can imagine then why they were greatly distressed. You're going to be not only suffering and dying, you're going to be betrayed. Who would do such a thing? But as they're contemplating betrayal and death and resurrection, there's also distress and misunderstanding. And so the verse ends with saying, and they were greatly distressed. They're already worried and bothered by what Jesus must go through. But this time, notice, they do not try to convince Jesus not to go. They're not going to get in his way like we saw in Matthew 16. No, no, this won't happen to you, Lord. Now they know it's going to happen. There's a sense of inevitability. It's going to continue. And Jesus is determined to go through them, and so they're distressed. But they missed, again, the most important thing that Jesus predicted, and that is that he will be raised on the third day. You know, oftentimes, even in our own emotional distress and our own sorrow, we're not able to look beyond the immediate of the situation. And the apostles at this point, as they hear about the Son of Man suffering and dying and being betrayed, they're blocked into the, it's still Friday syndrome. They're blocked about the events that will happen on Sunday, and they're not able to see, in fact, this must be gone through so that we can get to the greater event, which is Sunday. As one writer said, they did not understand the fact that he sugared the bitter pill of his death with the sweetness of his assured resurrection. They've heard it a couple of times now. They're still not getting it. They're still stuck in the immediate suffering that is before them that they must push through so that they'll see, yes, it's Friday, but Sunday is still coming. And perhaps in our own lives, as we are at the, in the middle of very difficult and challenging circumstances, 
God has promised to go through those things with us, to walk with us, to accompany us, and to bring us through. And we've already sang this morning when we all get to heaven. But in order for us to all get to heaven, we're first going to have to go through the suffering that is here on this earth and all have to pass through the valley of death. And it might be then that we have to remind ourselves that no matter what phase we're at in our suffering and difficulty, it's still, in a sense, Friday and Sunday is still coming. The greatest is yet to come. And for the Christian, we can say that. We have the greatest of futures, and it's still yet to come. So we see promise to Jerusalem, we will go. But secondly, our major point is privilege to tax or not to tax. And then they come to Capernaum. They've arrived back now in this region of Galilee at Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus began his Galilean ministry. This was the headquarters, if you will, of what Jesus did in the region of Galilee. So it's appropriate then that if it began here, that it will also end here. Perhaps they're wrapping up things as they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And as they do, they experience the drama of drachmas. The drama of drachmas. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Now, what's interesting is this account is only found in the gospel according to Matthew. And that makes sense because Matthew was a tax collector. This is something that he was interested in. This is what he did before he was called as a disciple and an apostle. This subject would be of interest to him. And how would Jesus handle this important interest? So maybe it's comforting to us to know that even Jesus had to deal with taxes. And in this case, the tax that is at hand was called the two drama tax. And the drachma was the Greek form of money. It was equivalent to the denarius, which was the Roman form of currency used in Israel in that day. And in a couple chapters, we'll get to Matthew 20, and we'll see that a denarius was the daily wage for a day laborer. So the two drachma tax, with two denarius, would be the equivalent of two days' wages for the common man. So what was this tax for? Well, it was collected for the running of the temple in Jerusalem. It's based loosely on the command given in Exodus chapter 30, where there was to be a tax, a half shekel for every male, age 20 and above, after each census. And this tax was given, as the money was collected, it would be for the maintenance and operations of the tabernacle at that time in Exodus 30. It was later applied to the operation and maintenance of the temple. But over time, the religious leader said it's not enough for this to be a one-time tax whenever there's the occasional census. We all know the experience. Once you start collecting a little tax, it doesn't seem like there's enough, so they have to collect a little more. And so now this tax by certain traditions, became an annual tax. And of course, it was meant with much disgruntling. But it was a practice in the days of Jesus. And this collection of the tax continued to be from Jewish men, whether they resided in Jerusalem or not. And that meant the payment would be received in different types of currencies that were used in the different regions where the Jews lived. And that's one of the reasons why there was then the money changers in the temple. Because whether they were drachmas or denarii, denarii, denarius, the plural is denarii, whether they were used there, they could not be used in the temple because they would have the images of Greek or Roman gods 
or impressions or things from the Greeks and the Romans, not acceptable in the temple. They had to use the temple shekel. So they would come to the money changers with their one currency. They would change it into the currency they could use in the temple, and that would be used for the buying of animals. And, of course, there was always a charge. And if they'd exchange too much money, then they would have to exchange it back, and, of course, there would be a charge. And so this became a very lucrative, albeit corrupt, way of making money for the running of the temple. And Jesus will have something to say about what's going on in the temple. We're not there yet, but as we get later towards Matthew 21, we'll see that Jesus, upset by the fact that this place of prayer is being used for corruption, upset by the fact that those Gentiles who wanted to come and worship couldn't even use the one place that was theirs in the, temp in the temple ground because of the corruption, is going to have a reaction that is going to get people's attention. But many even among the Jews opposed the paying of this tax. The Sadducees didn't want to pay it because they thought this is something that the Pharisees did and they added something to the law. The Sadducees, of course, only referring to the first five books only of the Bible, only following them. Others were committed to paying this tax just once in a lifetime because that's what it seemed according to Exodus 30. Others just said we're not going to pay it because there's corruption going on in the temple. And because it was only Jewish men age 20 and above that would pay it, that could create some resentment among those who would not pay it. So all that is by way of tech background, what's going on. But what really becomes crucial to the story that we're looking at this morning is that the paying of the tax became a test of loyalty. Are you with the temple? Are you with the people? Are you with the priesthood? Are you a patriot? Because a patriot pays his taxes. And so all of that is going on in the background then as Jesus and his disciples arrive in Capernaum and they're asked, do you pay the temple tax? And they come to Peter. Now to be sure, these tax collectors are not the typical Roman tax collectors who would say, well, we're going to arrange so much tax for the Romans, we're going to get this much and we'll take everything on top of it and they exploited the people in everyday life. These were tax collectors specifically for the temple in Jerusalem. Perhaps they have no record of Jesus paying the tax. Perhaps they haven't seen him pay the tax in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so they come and ask him. Maybe this is a form of notice that the taxes are due. And they come to Peter. Does your teacher pay the tax or not? They come to Peter because they had already called Jesus teacher. And in the custom there, it was, it was not seen that you would approach the teacher directly. You would go through his, his students. You would go through his disciples. So they would come to him directly. Another reason possibly is that Peter was the spokesman. So do you pay the tax? Let's go to the spokesman. But thirdly, they're in Capernaum and probably in Peter's house. Because it's likely that his house was used as the headquarters for their ministry in Capernaum. But whatever the case, does your teacher not pay the tax? And the way the question was asked, was that it was anticipated that the response would be yes. In the original language, you can ask a question in such a way that you expect a no answer, in such a way that you expect a yes answer, or in such a way that it's an open question. And in this case, that where a yes answer is expected is how it is answered. He pays the tax, doesn't he, would be a good way of translating it. So G uh, Peter hears the question and says yes. But what has he not done? 
He hasn't talked to Jesus first. He hasn't consulted with anyone. Perhaps he's thinking, well, of course, the law required it. Jesus follows the law. He would pay the tax. So, yes. And then he goes into the house. And we get to our next point then where we see, are we sons or others? Are we sons or others? And now Jesus is going to dialogue with Peter about the nature of this tax. Now, humanly speaking, just from the standpoint of everyday Jewish society in the first century, there are at least three reasons why Jesus did not need to pay this tax. He didn't need to pay this tax because he lived off the charity of others. We see examples like in Luke chapter 8 and others where people supported Jesus as he was traveling in his itinerant ministry. Groups would go along with him and they would support him out of their own means. And there was a category for those who were supported by the charity of others that they were exempt from paying the temple tax. Secondly, Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis were also in that excluded class where they did not need to have to pay this tax. And thirdly, as a matter of conscience, if a Jew thought that there was too much corruption, then they could decide they didn't have to pay the tax. Jesus, of course, would know that there's corruption. So humanly speaking, Jesus did not have to pay the tax. That adds to the drama that is here as you talk about, are you with us, are you against us, are you a patriot, are you not? Jesus knows who he is. And this is where it gets really interesting because he, said he knew that he was the true prophet. He knew that he was the true priest. He was the true king of the people of God. He knew that he came to be the perfect sacrifice for the sin of those he came to redeem. He alone can atone perfectly for God's people. So if Jesus comes to do what he came to do, if he does it, if he accomplishes it, there wouldn't be any need or reason for the temple or the priesthood after his messianic work was complete. So why pay the temple tax when the temple is short-lived? Moreover, Jesus, a few chapters before in chapter 12, said that he was, all, he was already greater than the temple. And if the symbol is there, but the one that is greater than the symbol has come, why pay to keep up the symbol when the fulfillment of the symbol has come? Why pay for the upkeep of that which will soon pass away? Then you remember, when Jesus died, what happened in the temple? Well, the veil was torn in two. The separation that had existed between God and man was taken away for the ultimate high priest had gone into the ultimate holy of holy to offer the ultimate sacrifice that would atone completely once and for all for the sins of God's people. And Jesus now is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He is not only greater than the temple, he is the true temple, for the temple is the meeting place between God and man. And he's building a temple, a church, but not of brick and stone, but built of the living stones who have the, the spirit of God living within them, the spiritual edifice that is being built, the church that he will build that will never fail because Jesus will build it and even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and as we saw when we looked at that intricate passage of Jesus saying I will build my church and on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it that he was raising up the church that was built on his truth on him and he is the cornerstone no more need for priests or a temple or sacrifices or a holy of holies because he is all of that. 
and the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so what Christ would do on the cross will render useless the work in the temple. So why pay the temple tax? But Jesus had also promised that he would be delivered, that he would suffer, he would die, he would be killed by that generation. And he said the punishment on that generation will be the destruction of the temple. And that happened 30 plus years after Jesus died and rose back to heaven. So why invest in that which will be destroyed by God? Because that which is the fulfillment has come. So now we get back to our text. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So Peter goes into the house. And imagine his surprise when Jesus begins to recount to him the conversation that he just had in the courtyard. Now, whether this is a display of divine knowledge or whether this is simply Jesus overhearing the conversation, the fact remains Jesus knew what Peter had said and has to correct his misunderstanding. And he calls him Simon. That was his human name. That was what Jesus always called him except one time in Matthew 16 when he says, your name is Peter. But here he goes back and says, you are Simon. I have a question for you. He doesn't ask Simon, why didn't you talk to me first? He wants to lead Simon into a deeper understanding of why Jesus didn't have to pay the tax, but that he would. He wanted to provide Peter with more insight into who he really was. So he didn't begin the conversation about the morality of taxes or about what is the fair share that someone should pay. He asked a more fundamental question. Who collects taxes? And who pays them? So the question, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Is it the common attitude for kings to collect taxes from their own family and their own sons? Or that they collect them from the common people? Now we know that this is generally how it works in kingdoms. That the paying of the tax is for those who are under the control of the king. The royalty do, do not pay it, but the exchange is that the king will provide protection, the king will provide leadership, the king will maintain social order, and the people will pay the tax so that that happens. And those who benefit then as they pay the tax expect the king to fulfill his role. So Peter understands that much. From who? From their sons or from others? And he says from others. That's how kingdoms operate today. That's how governments operate today. We, we may want to debate the merits of all that, and we might want to debate the Efficacy of the taxes that are paid, that's best handled as we have lunch together and talk about it. But Jesus just asked the question. And as he asked the question, as he always does, he's revealing a little more about who he is. He's revealing something about himself. He knows he's the son of a king. And so, let's take it one step further. Who owns the temple? The temple belongs to God. Who is the son? Jesus. Should he have to pay the tax as the son of God? Had not the father already clearly said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So if the father owns the temple, then the son is not obligated to pay the tax. So the logical explanation is that if 
the sons have freedom to serve. So Jesus responds, then the sons are free. Jesus says, in a not-so-subtle way, and yet in a subtle way, that he is the son of the ultimate king. He is the son of God. It's been affirmed at least twice from heaven by the voice of God. Therefore, he's not obligated to pay the tax. The work of the temple is for the worship of God, for the offering of sacrifices to him. But Jesus has already said that he's greater than the temple, greater than Solomon, greater than David, greater than everything. He never violated the law. So he had no need of the work of the temple. Moreover, he's the meeting place between God and man. And if he is the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true priest, the true offering, why pay for a tax for what is no longer necessary? But then the, the implication there then is that not only does he not have to pay it, but neither do his disciples. Because it says the sons are free and he has come to announce, to bring in the kingdom of heaven we enter the kingdom of heaven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we repent of our sins, as we believe, we confess that he is Lord. We trust him to forgive us of our sins. We're no longer just the subjects of kingdoms of men, but we're now in the kingdom of heaven. But in our story, the man comes and says, does he not pay the tax? Well, apparently he hadn't that year. Neither had Peter. And so though he is not obligated to pay the tax, he will make arrangements so that it will be paid. And so after we've seen all that he has said so far, we now see the provision. Go and catch a fish. He's already promised that we will go to Jerusalem to finish the work of the Messiah. He's given the privilege that the son and those who belong to him do not need to pay the tax. But they're going to pay it, and Jesus tells us why. And he'll show us the provision. Because of the gospel principle, do not make others stumble. Do not make others stumble. Verse 27 begins, however, not to give offense to them. There's a lot that we could unpack here, but remember the people are not yet ready to receive Jesus as the Messiah. They do not yet understand what the Messiah must do. Therefore, they would take a poor view of those who refuse to pay the temple tax especially those that claim to be good people of Israel. And if he doesn't pay it, it could cause problems for this individual tax collector who then has to go back to his boss and say, I wasn't able to collect tax from everyone. Therefore, giving the religious leaders of Jerusalem yet another reason to oppose him. It's a, it's a secondary matter. Jesus came to fulfill the temple and to supersede it, but he didn't come to reject. He came to fulfill in his incarnation, think about what Jesus did. He came and identified with the people he came to redeem. That's why we know through whom he was born, where he was born, among whom he lived. At his baptism, he said, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He came to identify with the people that he came to redeem. He began to retrace all the steps of Israel where Israel had failed. He is the true Israelite, fulfilled all that had been failed in the past. So he'll pay the tax because he identifies with the people that he came to redeem. And as a secondary matter, he's not going to let the paying of a temple tax get in the way of doing what he came to do, which is save his people from their sins. Everything that Jesus does has a purpose to it. It displays his teaching. 
It displays his character. It displays the principles of the gospel. There's never a wasted opportunity. He's showing us that he is willing to sacrifice something of himself for the benefit of others. We know that. He did that in the ultimate sense. But he knows who he is. He's the son of God. He has rights. He has privileges. We're all going to bow before him one day and praise him as the son of God. But in his incarnation, he gives up some of his rights. He lays aside his glory to suffer humiliation, to suffer injustice, to suffer death. And sometimes we, we fail to grasp the level of the humiliation that Jesus went through that left the glory of heaven to come and have to live among us for 30 plus years and never sin, not once. You want to have proof that he was God in the flesh? There it is. He lived among us for 30 years and he never sinned once. He gave up his rights for the benefit of others. And in becoming man, he laid aside his glory that he would be humiliated. And because he came as the true temple to fulfill the temple and all that was in there, in a sense, it was a form of humiliation for him to pay the temple tax. Because why should he pay when he is the true temple? But he laid aside his rights for the greater good and for the glory of God. And so he made provision and this theme of Christians giving up their rights for the greater good, deferring to one another, which we're called to do, to submitting to one another that we're called to do, to serving one another that we're called to do, loving one another that we're called to do. Paul lays out in great detail in several places in his writings. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10 and Romans 14 and 15, Paul goes to great lengths to show how Christians should interact with one another and how we give up of our own rights because we're purchased by the precious blood of Christ, brought into the body of Christ. He is the head. He is the Lord. We are his. Therefore, then, as we give up our rights for the greater good, as we defer to one another, we don't fight over matters of secondary importance. That's what Jesus is modeling for us here. And I found a useful illustration from the writings of a man named Stephen Beck. He writes, I was driving down a country road and I came to a very narrow bridge. In front of that bridge, a sign was posted, yield. Seeing no oncoming cars, I continued to cross the bridge and onto my destination. On the way back, I came to that same one lane bridge now from the other side, and to my surprise, I saw another sign posted, yield. Curiously, I thought, I'm sure there was one positioned on the other side. When I reached the other side, I looked back, and sure enough, a yield sign had been placed at both ends of the bridge. Drivers coming from both sides were requested to give right away. It was a reasonable and gracious way of preventing a head-on collision. When the Bible commands Christians to defer to one another, to respect one another, to submit to one another, it's a perfectly reasonable and gracious command to let the other have the right of way and to avoid head-on interpersonal collisions. Sometimes the gospel obligates us to do things so as to avoid offense, even if it's not specifically required. 
We express love by seeking the benefit of the other, by loving the other, by serving the other, by doing what we need to do and not turning everything into a struggle, everything into a titanic battle of wills and wits. The disciples are still learning that. And they're watching Jesus and what he did. Didn't have to pay the tax, but he said we will. The paying of the temple tax was not a matter of first importance. Jesus just simply wants to do what he should do and even respecting the authorities that are there because they're there. And no authority has been raised up that has not been put there except by God. And so he submitted to them because he first submitted to the Father. And it's a challenge down through the ages, is it not? For us to apply these principles of deference and submission and reverence and seeking the well-being of one another. Especially when it comes to the idea of authorities. But if we only obey the authorities when we agree with them, well, that's just simply called agreeing. But we're not called to agreeing. We're called to submitting to one another and committing to, to authorities. Christ has set us free from the demands of the law so that we're free to serve God fully with a free heart full of love. To set us free so that we can serve others so that they are built up and edified and brought to maturity in Christ. Now that we're in Christ, for the first time, we are truly free. But that's not a freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whomever we want, as many times as we want. Now, that's still slavery to our sinful passions. True freedom is in the words of the great philosopher Augustine, is to have the ability to do what is right, to overcome the bondage of the sin nature, to overcome the bondage of our own flesh, to do what is right for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did. Always did what was right for the other, the well-being of the other, and for the glory of God. Because he alone can define what is good. It means we're free to be a servant. Servant of the living God and the servant of the people of God. With our hearts set free from ourselves. So Jesus pays the tax. Not because he needed to. But because he will show us what true freedom looks like. Which is serving one another for the greater good. And so in that provision. And so as to not make others stumble. He will give a great catch. A great catch. Verse 27. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus shows his lordship, his sovereignty, his providence. He provides a solution that will satisfy the leaders of his day. He says, Peter, go fishing. Wouldn't be hard to do. After all, they're still in Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Certainly wouldn't be hard for Peter, who is a professional fisherman. But notice Jesus says, just this time, just cast a hook. This is a professional fisherman who's used to fishing with nets. He says, just, just cast a hook. That will do. One fish will be enough. Cast a hook. Put it in the water, pull up the first fish you catch, open its mouth, pull out a coin, 
it'll be exactly what is needed to pay for two people. So let's think a little bit about all that has to happen here in this fun little story. A person had to accidentally drop a coin into the water. Not just any coin, but a one-shekel coin. Perhaps they're frustrated because they dropped that coin. And a fish, perhaps attracted to the shiny coin, swoops in and grabs it, but doesn't swallow it, perhaps because he can't, but in any case, the coin remains in his mouth. And then that fish, and only that fish, would need to be the first one to grab the hook of Peter, and only the hook of Peter, and be pulled up. And this coin, translated as shekel, in the original was called a stator, and a stator was worth four drachmas. Now, how much was the temple tax for one person? Two drachmas. How many people will this tax pay for? Two people. It's an entertaining story. It's an amazing story. Peter was a professional fisherman, knew how to fish. There were probably other fishermen out on the sea at that time. There were certainly many fish in the Sea of Galilee. So go out and drop one hook and get one fish to get one, one coin to pay the tax one time for two people. Without saying a word about sovereignty, lordship, kingship, providence, even his divine nature, Jesus shows us who he is in this story. He's the son of God, who is to be the recipient of worship, not the giver of it. He's to be the recipient of giving, not the giving of it to the temple. He's not just part of creation. He is the Lord of creation. He shows what dominion looks like over all aspects of nature through whom it was all created. And he shows us that he is able to provide for us what is needed when it is needed. Peter, I'm sending you the fish. But you're the one that has to bait the hook. You've got to drop it in the water. You've got to catch the fish. You've got to pull it up. You've got to open the mouth. You've got to take out the coin. You've got to pay it. But I'm in control of all that. I'm directing all things for my glory and to show that I provide for my people. He shows his omniscience. He knows all things. He shows his providential governance and care. He shows his divine ability to release resources when they are necessary so the work of God can get done. And perhaps it was events like this, but certainly many others about who God is, that Hudson Taylor reminds us that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's provision. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the chapter, I looked at the passage where Jesus said, you'll have great faith. I believe it was in last week. With, have faith in God. And with God, all things are possible. And by faith, nothing is impossible. Well, Jesus will show us why we can have faith in such a God in this story. Because he accomplished what he said he would do. So we can trust him at his word. He says he is the true son of God. The one who is greater than the temple. So it is through him that we can go to God. It is through him that we can offer the true worship of God. It is through him that we can bow before and say, use my life. We just sang it. Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only hope is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. 
Jesus is my life. All I have is Christ. Christ is everything. If we have Christ, we have everything. He's the true son of God over the temple, greater than the temple. Shows us how to properly respect the authorities that are there. Shows us how to deal with secondary matters and not cause unnecessary offense. Shows us that he provides for his own. And will do it unfailingly. Since all of creation is under his lordship, we, his people, can trust him. We can follow him. We can lean upon him. We can lean into him. And we can know that he will provide what we need at the time that we need it. Now, next week, Jesus is going to show us the difference between self-proclaimed greatness, as the disciples argue among themselves, the difference between that and between childlike but not childish so as we prepare to look at that next week, what are some lessons we can take away from our time today? Well, knowing that God's plan is always good, we will trust him as he leads us day by day. We say God is good, and if he is, and since he is, we can trust him. Secondly, because Jesus is greater than all, we give him our first allegiance and our best effort. It's a privilege to be a servant of the living God. It is a privilege to serve the one who was the greatest servant of all and to proclaim him. Thirdly, because Jesus taught us not to offend others over secondary matters, we ask him to empower us to live in harmony with one another. Not every hill is a hill worth dying on. Not every issue is worth creating all kinds of strife. We're taught to fight together and fight in the same direction of turning on each other. And lastly, because Jesus is Lord over all, we will trust him to provide for all of our needs. What a great story this week as you walk through the travails and challenges of this week. Will you remember the coin and how God can provide? And I want us to walk in ways that are honoring to him. Let us pray. Father, we know that we need to lean into you and upon you. And I thank you for your precious word that reflects back at us like a mirror to reveal our true status so that we turn to Christ and say, oh, that we might become like him. Continue to lead us, Father, into daily confession of sin and repentance. Continue to lead us, Father, into seeking first and foremost the glory of God and his kingdom. Lead us, Father, and empower us in your joy to just not only love and serve you, but to love and serve others. And use us for your glory and for the good of those around us that your goodness might shine. Father, we surrender our wills to yours because yours alone is sufficient to attract all of our energy. Thank you, Father, for leading us this morning. Guide us in Jesus' name.